You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is Law Abiding Citizen, which came out in 2009 and was directed by F. Gary Gray. Did you murder Clarence Darby? He killed my wife and child. I guess we're done here. Counselor, you might want to cancel your 12.30 lunch with Judge Roberts. Release me or what? Or I kill everyone. We have him locked up and he's still killing people? I found a couple of contract payments from the Department of Defense. Tell us what we're dealing with. A spy? Spies are a dime a dozen. Clyde is a brain, and he was the best. If Clyde wants you dead, you're dead. We're gonna lock the city down, put an armed cop on every corner. He's in jail because he wants to be in jail. <laughs> I'm gonna bring the whole system down on your head. It's gotta be biblical. It stars Jamie Foxx, Gerard Butler, Leslie Bibb, Cole Meany, Bruce McGill, Regina Hall, Michael Kelly, and Viola Davis. The genre would be revenge thriller slash crime drama. Having now rewatched this movie so many times, one question always comes to mind. Is it possible that about 15 months after The Dark Knight took the world by storm, that F. Gary Gray actually directed a more streamlined, B-level, and more rewatchable version of it? Now, look, don't get me wrong, because I know there'll be a lot of Dark Knight fans who might get offended by that notion. The Dark Knight is a seminal movie in a lot of ways, with an all-time performance from Heath Ledger and several great sequences. It's far superior to most other films in the comic book genre, including most of those Marvel sitcoms pretending to be movies. It's beautifully crafted, and nobody ever made 21st century Chicago look cooler than director Chris Nolan and DP Wally Pfister. Even though I like The Dark Knight, it's also long, ponderous, and way too far up its own ass by the end of the movie. Whereas this version, Law Abiding Citizen, it's pure schlocky trash, and it knows it. It's also 40 minutes shorter, which is always a big thing for me. Yes, it's dumber too, as Gerard Butler's embittered and indignant, quote, master tactician Clyde, that's the name of his character, as he pulls off increasingly absurd feats of targeted assassination from inside a jail cell, or is he? that make the Joker's antics just seem credible by comparison. But Law Abiding Citizen isn't trying to be remotely realistic. It actually feels like it's trying to be a comic book, whereas The Dark Knight was trying to be a crime epic along the lines of heat. Which is harder to pull off, considering your main protagonist is dressed like a bat, and he growls when he talks. What gives you the right? What's the difference between you and me? I'm not wearing hockey pants. Though to be fair, Pacino did do a share of growling in heat. Jamie Foxx plays our intrepid hero, Nick. He's an assistant DA in Philadelphia who, in pursuit of maintaining his 96% conviction rate, cuts a very questionable deal with a local scumbag who brutally murdered Clyde's wife and child at their home in a very harrowing yet exploitive opening scene, all while Clyde watched helplessly. And 10 years later, Clyde is now out for revenge. 
and he wants to, quote, bring the whole system down. Now, Jamie Foxx is quite good playing a mixture of arrogance and anguish throughout this movie. He's pretty much the Batman of this story, always struggling to keep Clyde in check while trying with increasing difficulty to not break the rules. As one former CIA associate says to him about halfway through, What I'm saying is just assume that this guy can hear and see everything that you're doing. No, we got him locked away. Maximum security. He's in jail. It's because he wants to be in jail. He's a born tactician. Every move that he makes, it means something. That cellmate that he killed, you think that was random? No. That's a pawn being moved off the board. If I were you, I'd be looking for the next piece. Anybody who had anything to do with that case, he's going to be coming after you. So what are you saying? You saying we can't stop him? Walk into his cell and put a bullet in his head. Aside from that, no, you can't stop him. And at the time, Nick won't even consider such an option. But of course, we watch as his attitude on that changes. As for Butler, basically playing this story's Joker. Well, he's no Heath Ledger for sure, but he's good enough, even though he's always struggling to maintain that American accent. He's Scottish. Gerard Butler has never been one of the best actors out there as far as I'm concerned, but he does have that crazy eyes thing down really well. He also has several scenes going toe-to-toe with Fox, which are also quite engaging. Now, nothing will ever top that interrogation room scene between Joker and Batman in The Dark Knight. But what's nice with this narrative is that we see a series of interactions between Nick and Clyde throughout, showing a clear progression for their relationship. What if I had said, let's take him to trial, huh? Then I would say you're making progress. And we might have lost. And Ames and Darby will both go free. Don't you get that? Didn't care, Nick. He didn't even try. You could have walked out of that courtroom with your head held high. I could have lived with that, Nick. I'll keep my head up, and you will end this. I'm just getting warmed up. This is Von Klauswitz shit. Total fucking war. And as previously noted, shit just gets increasingly crazy and more homicidal over the last 40 minutes or so. Gray and writer Kurt Wimmer really stretch the limits of how much we can digest with regards to Clyde as a villain. Not only do some of his kills defy reality, I mean, nobody would notice a self-propelled robotic minigun slash rocket launcher in the middle of a cemetery. But once we finally find out his means for doing all this carnage from his jail cell, let's just say it's quite the leap. But here's the thing. All of it is breathlessly paced and well shot with a strong supporting cast to lend more credibility to everything transpiring on screen. Colmini, Viola Davis. We have him locked up and he's still killing people? How did this get away from you, Jonas? It's complicated, April. He's very smart. He's very angry. We assume he has an accomplice helping him on the outside. I'm not having this conversation. I don't care how smart he is or who's helping him. Bruce McGill and Regina Hall, they each make the most with limited screen time. Now, do I buy into the political themes of this movie? Well, not particularly, though the film just gives lip service to them as opposed to redundant monologues from characters stopping the film in its tracks at times, unlike some other films, which I won't mention. Law Abiding Citizen is really just a modernization of the Death Wish series at its core, And to me, this works as a batshit cat-and-mouse thriller 
along the lines of Hannibal. It doesn't require any deep thinking, it doesn't wear out its welcome, and it ends on a satisfying note, which is all that I can ask for. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Okay, now this is just a weird one because I'm just a true sucker for this particular band when it comes to needle drops. It's actually kind of surprising that I haven't even cited them before in this category. This legendary British rock quartet was formed in 1964, and since then, they have delivered an impressive catalog of rock anthems over the past five-plus decades. But they kind of hit a renaissance, at least as far as needle drops go, around 2000, when their songs started getting utilized for the opening credit sequences of a very popular franchise of crime shows on network TV. Now, by this point, some of you are probably wondering, well, who is this band? And my response would be, exactly. Yes, we are talking about The Who, fronted by lead singer Roger Daltrey, singer-guitarist Pete Townsend, bass guitarist John Enswell, and the late great drummer Keith Moon. All legends in their own right as well. And as it turns out, Gerard Butler's Clyde shares my affection for this band, because once in jail, as part of several ongoing deals that he negotiates with the DA, he puts in a special request for a catered steak dinner from a local restaurant to be brought to his jail cell, along with an iPod so that he can listen to music during his meal. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy scene, and the song he chooses to blast via speakers while getting the special meal is a mid-tempo rocker from The Who, from the 1982 album It's Hard. The song is Eminence Front, and it's catchy, with a steady keyboard-driven hook playing throughout, which can also kind of put you ill at ease, kind of an unsettling background sound, as if you're waiting for something bad to suddenly happen. And it fits this scene perfectly, as you can hear it reverberating throughout a jail cell in the background while we watch Clyde invite his cellmate to join him in this feast, encouraging him to turn up the music, and then suddenly shiving him multiple times in the neck. Pretty bloody scene, actually. I think it's the bloodiest scene in the movie. Sometimes the best needle drops can be used to build tension within a scene, and this one does not disappoint. And that brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, because we've been here before with this category, I'm just going to make it short and sweet this time around. Hollywood thriller focusing on male characters facing off in a battle of wills? Check. Talented actress playing the put-upon wife of our protagonist or hero? Check. That would be Regina Hall playing Jamie Foxx's wife. Actress spends most of her screen time lecturing said protagonist on needing to spend more time with his family, but given no agency besides that, check. That, that's pretty much all the screenplay has her do. Therefore, is Regina Hall pretty much underutilized in this role? Are her talents wasted? Check again. And that brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. For this category, we actually have a tie as Butler's Clyde comes up with just so many devious ways to dispatch with folks who he deems to be his enemies. Among them, one true highlight has to be when he just goes full-on jigsaw, 
preparing to dismember the killer-slash-rapist who got the deal with the DA earlier in the movie. Now, I'm not going to lie. You can see where Clyde's coming from in this scene. And Butler just plays it with a sort of psychotic glee that just feels authentic, just perfect for the scene. Remember me? Sure you do. You came over to my house once before. You don't remember? This tetrotoxin should be nicely into your system by now. It's isolated from the liver of a Caribbean puffer fish. So it paralyzes you, leaves all the other neurological functions perfectly intact. In other words, you can't move, but you feel everything. And look, I made this especially for you. You like it? Yeah, I didn't want you to miss anything. Now you have the best view in the house. You hear that? Your heart is beating so fast. No, me too. The other trailer moment features his handiwork, but we don't even see Clyde in this particular scene. And this one is just very reminiscent of The Dark Knight, hence all the comparisons. Speaking of which, remember that scene about halfway through The Dark Knight when Jim Gordon is meeting with then-Commissioner Loeb in his office as things are getting increasingly tense? Gordon is there to warn him that the Joker might be looking to assassinate the Commissioner, as they found his DNA on several Joker cards left at another recent assassination. Loeb starts to sit back in his chair, and he smugly pours a stiff drink. Then he starts to explain to Gordon how threats like this are just all part of the... Oh, oh, the commissioner starts coughing as he drinks. He's been poisoned. He suddenly collapses to his death. Pretty startling death, right? Well, about halfway through a law-abiding citizen, F. Gary Gray is more than happy to see your Joker and raise you a Clyde, because we have a similar scene with Jamie Foxx and Bruce McGill are sitting down with Judge Birch, played smugly by Annie Corley. They're in her office. And just for context up until this point, we've already seen the Honorable Judge Birch preside over both the murder case, where Fox's DA cut a deal with the murder of Clyde's wife and daughter, and in a later scene, when Clyde himself is being held for bail after possible murder charges. During this scene, Clyde has some very choice words for the judge, as he states that she's part of the problem with the system. And needless to say, Clyde has more planned for the judge than just some choice words. Well, we watched Fox and McGill calmly plead with the judge to sign off on limiting Clyde's ability to even wander the prison yard while he is incarcerated. Because by this point, even though Clyde's in jail, they fear that he's allowed to dispatch others to be murdered if he's just able to leave his cell. They really just want to keep him right in his cell. The judge then tells them that even though this is a very stark violation of Clyde's civil rights, that she's game to sign off on this order. Suddenly, her cell phone rings. She says something else smug to them, then puts her phone to her ear, and then, boom, her head jerks to the side, blood coming out. There was a bomb in the cell phone, and Clyde planted it. And from what I have heard, this was the most startling moment for audiences when this played in theaters. Of course, the startled reactions on the faces of both Fox and McGill are just priceless. How I wish I could have seen this in a theater. So let me get this straight. You want me to violate his God-given civil rights in the name of some murky sense of the greater good. Is that the gist of it, gentlemen? 
Okay. I'm game. Just don't plan on it sticking for long. All right. Wait, wait, you're going to take that? After all the grief you've given me over cell phone? Well, that's one of the benefits of being a judge, Mr. Rice. I can pretty much do whatever I want. Hello? Oh, my God. And that brings me to the final category. That would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. As I have already stated, this film veers into increasingly ridiculous directions towards the end. And the themes are kind of muddled. And yet, I find it highly rewatchable. Both Butler and Fox are just bringing it, along with a very talented supporting cast who each make the most of their individual scenes. Beyond that, the film just looks really good and is very well paced. At the end of the day, it is a very well-made B-movie. And major props need to go to director F. Gary Gray for pulling this off for helming one of the best guilty pleasure movies of the 21st century so far, F. Gary Gray is the MVP. A man I cared about once told me that we can't retract the decisions that we've made. We can only affect the decisions we're going to make from here. What, are you trying to save me now, Nick? I'm giving you a way out. Big difference. Stand up for those principles you've been preaching. See, we're all held accountable, Clyde. That includes you. Why don't we do the right thing here? I'm doing the right thing, Nick. You just have to see it that way. By murdering all those people, all you're doing is destroying the memory of your daughter and causing the same pain that you're suffering from. So what do you suggest, Nick? Uh, Make another deal? One final offer? Is that what it is? I don't make deals with murderers anymore, Clyde. You taught me that. My rating for Law Abiding Citizen would be four stars out of five. They really don't make high-budgeted films like this nowadays, so if you're looking for an enjoyably depraved revenge thriller from the modern era, you really can't do much better than this. And if you're looking for Law-Abiding Citizen, you could find it streaming on Netflix. And that ends another impartial review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.